This is Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir. Hello and welcome to part three of the Reformation Revisited. I'm Graham Weir and this six-part series is an examination of the great Protestant Reformation and its implications for the survival of Christianity today. In this episode, we're going to look at some of the tactics of the enemy to destroy the Reformation spirit, both in the past and today, because the Counter-Reformation is still going forward. We need to look at what's happening today. Let's begin with a prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee for an opportunity to consider the wonderful heritage you've given us as as Christians, the price that has been paid for the freedom that we enjoy today. And we are conscious that the enemy of all righteousness, Satan himself, seeks to destroy this Protestant Reformation. And it has even been announced that the Protestant Reformation is over. Lord, we know it is not over. It will not be over until you come. So we pray that you'll bless us today as we go through this program, as we examine this material. We pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And more than this, we pray that you will give us hearts inclined to do your will. Because we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Our text today is 1 Peter 5, 8-11. And I'll be reading from the screen because that makes it easier for viewers to uh, see the text. And it says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And verse 9 says, Whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And verse 10 says, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you've suffered a while, he will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a good text, isn't it? Well, the Protestant Reformation was one of the greatest events in world history. By the mid-16th century, this movement had swept right throughout Germany and was advancing through Switzerland, England, France, Austria, and many other parts of Europe. And the Roman Catholic Church was seriously concerned because at this time they had the Muslims waging war against some of their territories and they had the Protestants fighting them from within. And they were in trouble. And not only was the church in trouble, but the devil was also in trouble. Because he was a Christian movement calling for a return to the Bible and the Bible only. The devil knew full well that if the Bible were taken seriously, there would be a return to the commandments, a return to the truth, and a return to Jesus as the only source of salvation. So what was the solution? The Roman church conscious of the truth of some of the Protestant claims, they wanted to have its own Reformation. So it started what it called the Catholic Reformation. 
but which later became known as the Great Counter-Reformation because of its preoccupation with countering the advances of the Protestants. Well, the Catholic Church met together over a number of years in the northern Italian city of Trent, and this commission of cardinals was given the task of institutional reform. They addressed contentious issues such as corrupt bishops and priests, indulgences and other financial abuses. They also instituted two main instruments to counter the Protestant Reformation. The first of these was to duplicate the Spanish Inquisition and establish it more fully in Italy and other parts of Europe. This ruthless suppression effectively branded those who didn't agree with the church as enemies of the state and caused a huge number of them to lose their lives. More than 100 million, more than four times the population of Australia were murdered because they didn't agree with the church. But one of the biggest weaknesses of the church of that period was their religious orders. No one really took them seriously. So the second major initiative of the council was to establish a number of new monastic orders with improved education, clearer purposes, and more responsible administration. And among these, the Jesuits was the most outstanding. Organising their order along military lines, they were characterised by careful selection, rigorous training, and iron discipline. The pioneer for the Jesuits was Ignatius Loyola. He was a Spanish man who'd been physically disabled by a cannonball during battle. Loyola turned to religion with great fervour and fanaticism. And he was a brilliant visionary who would let nothing stand in the way of his dream. And that dream was to wipe out Protestantism and re-establish the one holy Catholic Church. The Jesuits grew from just 10 members to over 15,000, and they spanned the globe within their first 100 years. Their induction ceremony and oath of allegiance make for frightening reading, even today. They clearly demonstrate their absolute determination to destroy Protestantism and all its systems of government. So not just the religion, but also the secular government that's based on Protestant principles. I want you to take a look at this sample of just a part of the Oath of Allegiance. And it says, I'm quoting, I do further declare that I will help, assist and advise all or any of His Holiness's agents in any place wherever I shall be, in Switzerland, Germany, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, England, Ireland or America, or in any other kingdom or territory that I shall come to, and do my uttermost to extirpate the heretical Protestants or liberals' doctrines and to destroy all their pretended powers, legal or otherwise. Well, it gets a lot more specific than that. And you might well ask the question, is this still relevant today? Is it still in use today? Well, you can examine the evidence for yourself on this website, but be warned, it isn't bedtime reading. If you go into barbabelievers.org.au slash jesuits.htm, you will find it. 
and you can read it for yourself. I tell you what, it's not very pleasant and I haven't revealed the worst part of it to you. Well, if we do an examination of the history of this organisation from many sources, it seems to reveal a number of tactics. One of them is that they will infiltrate key organisations, particularly other churches, and especially in the key positions of academic influence and administrative control. This was their key strategy. And then slowly over time, they would introduce error deliberately designed to create arguments and division. Just little differences of opinion at first, and then larger, more important divergences, until eventually, as more people became involved, there would be splits and smaller offshoots would form, which in time would also experience arguments and division, and still more splits and still other offshoot groups, until eventually the original structure became shattered by internal divisions into a million fragments like an exploding rock. Or perhaps an even much more subtle and more dangerous strategy, instead of shattering the organisation into non-existence by internal explosions, they would gradually introduce issues and policies that were designed to create compromise and conformity, and eventually neutralise the distinctive original organisational purposes without destroying its structure, but instead would turn it into a tool that would aid Jesuit purposes. And it's helpful to remember at this point that these purposes are clearly stated in their own documents. Remember, it's the total destruction of Protestantism and eventually the democratic and republican systems of government. Did you note that? Not just the religion, but the democratic and republican systems of government that originated in the minds of the Protestant refugees from papal state-supported persecution. So these texts tell us that they are not only against Christianity, they also are against democracy, and Protestantism and uh, Republicanism. They may say they're not, but the evidence proves otherwise. One very prominent author, the most prolific woman writer in American history, Ellen White, she wrote a great controversy book, which was a great commentary on Christian history. She actually had much to say about the Jesuits. And I want you, I'm going to quote here so you can see for yourself what she had to say. Remember, this was written 150 years ago. She said the Jesuits were the most cruel and scrupulous and powerful of all the champions of popery. Cut off from earthly ties and human interest, dead to the claims of natural affection, reason and conscience, holy silence, they knew no rule, no tie, but that of their order and no duty but to extend its power. The gospel of Christ had enabled its adherents to meet danger and endure suffering undismayed by cold, hunger, toil and poverty, to uphold the banner of truth in the face of the rack, the dungeon and the state. To combat these forces, Jesuitism inspired its followers with a fanaticism that enabled them to endure like dangers and to use in the fight against truth 
all the weapons of deception. There is no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility, it was their studied aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the re-establishment of the papal supremacy. When appearing as members of their order, they wore a garb of sanctity, visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus, who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. It was a fundamental principle of the order that the end justifies the means. And by this code, lying, theft, perjury, assassination were not only pardonable but commendable when they served the interest of the church. Under various disguises, the Jesuits worked their way into offices of state, climbing up to be the counsellors of kings and shaping the policy of nations. They became servants to act as spies upon their masters. They established colleges for sons of princes and nobles and schools for the common people. And the children of Protestant parents were drawn into the observance of Popish rites. All the outward pomp and display of the Romish worship was brought to bear to confuse the minds and dazzle and captivate the imagination. And thus the liberty for which the fathers had toiled and bled was betrayed by the sons. The Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe and wherever they went there followed a revival of popery. To give them greater power, a bull was issued re-establishing the Inquisition. Notwithstanding the general abhorrence with which it was regarded, even in Catholic countries, this terrible tribunal was again set up by Popish rulers. And atrocities too terrible to bear the light of a day were repeated in its secret dungeons. In many countries, thousands upon thousands of the very flower of the nation, the purest and the noblest, the most intellectual and the highly educated, pious and devoted pastors, industrious and patriotic citizens, brilliant scholars, talented artists, skillful artisans, were slain or forced to flee to other lands. End of quote. Not a pretty picture, is it? Even earlier than Ellen White, the second president of the United States, John Adams, he saw this evil society developing and he tried to warn his successor, Thomas Jefferson, in 1816. And in his letter to Thomas Jefferson, he said this, I do not like the reappearance of the Jesuits. Shall we not have regular swarms of them here in as many disguises as only a king of the gypsies can assume? Dressed as printers, publishers, writers and schoolmasters, if ever there was a body of men who merited damnation on earth and hell, it is this society of loyalists. And another president, Abraham Lincoln, was also well aware of the underhand work of the Jesuits when he wrote this statement. 
He said the war, he was talking about the American Civil War of 1861 to 1865, he said the war would never have been possible without the sinister influence of the Jesuits. And unfortunately today, the purposes of the Jesuit order appear to be frighteningly close to fulfilment. Over 30 years ago, a former Jesuit, Alberto Rivera, revealed that a prearranged signal would indicate when all the churches of America had been successfully infiltrated by the Jesuits. All the churches of America, not one of them left out. And he said the sign that would be given would be this. A president would take his oath of office facing an obelisk, like this one in Washington, D.C. And this happened on January 20th, 1981 when President Reagan, for the first time in history, the swearing-in ceremonies of the United States President were moved from the east side to the west face of the Capitol building. And President Reagan took his oath of office while facing the Washington Monument, an obelisk. So recorded history leaves us no doubt that the establishment of the Jesuit order is one of Rome's most effective weapons against Protestantism. Now we're going to go back and we're going to take a look at some of the other issues that arose at the Council of Trent. It wasn't just the Jesuits. They had other strategies. The foundation doctrine of the Protestant was sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only. This doctrine revealed to everyone the great gap between what the church said and what the Bible taught and challenged Rome's claim that church tradition carried more authority than the Bible. Knowing this, some members of the council argued for a return to the Bible, and they felt this would be the best foundation for a revival in their own church. <clears throat> Sounds good. But this approach was overwhelmingly defeated. There was a clear majority who voted for the church to continue to uphold tradition and church authority over the Bible. The turning point came when the Archbishop of Reggio gave a speech proving that the Protestants also believe in the authority of the church over tradition. He said they do not really believe in the Bible and the Bible only. And this was his evidence. He pointed to the fact that the Protestants were keeping what day? Sunday. A day of worship established by church tradition and authority, and certainly not a day of worship based on the Bible. He admitted this quite openly. He said this, The Sabbath, the most glorious day in the law, has been changed into the Lord's day. These and other similar matters have not ceased by virtue of Christ's teachings. For he says he's come to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. But they have been changed by the authority of the church. Well, this statement gave the Church of Rome great courage and confidence in their faith. But there was still something else that they knew was their theological Achilles heel. The reformers had based their opposition to the papacy on Bible prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And these time prophecies had accurately identified all the major world powers that would arise throughout history from the time of Babylon until the second coming of Christ. 
they correctly understood that the head of gold of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in Daniel 2 represented the nation of Babylon and that the chested arms of silver represented the Medes and the Persians which arose after Babylon and the belly and the thighs of brass were the symbol of Greece which arose next and that the legs of iron represented the iron monarchy of Rome which arose after Greece and that the feet and toes of part iron and part clay symbolised the divided nations of Western Europe. And finally, they also understood that the rock which descended from heaven and smashed the image in the feet represented the second coming of Christ to set up his righteous kingdom that would never be overcome or destroyed. They understood all that. And as well as this, they had correctly pinpointed their own time period in Bible prophecy, and they identified the papacy as the Antichrist of Daniel chapter 7 and the whore of Revelation chapter 17. They had correctly calculated that the beginning of the 1260 days or years prophesied in the book of Revelation began in AD 538 when the Roman Catholic Emperor Justinian united church and state for the first time. And they predicted it would end in the year 1798, which it did, on the 11th of February of that year. Exactly 1260 solar years from 538. Because on that day, Napoleon General Berthier took the Pope prisoner. He abolished the church-state relationship and established the Roman Republic. Well, this theological discovery threatened the very existence of the Roman Church. It was definitely their theological Achilles heel. So the Council of Trent was effectively a council of war that had to come up with a strategy to fight this theological threat. Well, the Jesuits, the great academics, the brilliant scholars in the church said, we'll take care of this one. Let us fight it. And finally, after being granted a period of time to study the problem, they came up with two alternative approaches deliberately designed to counter the Reformation by undermining its approach to Bible study and interpretation. In the first one, Alcazar invented a doctrine called Preterism. And this doctrine applied the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation to the Jews and pagan Rome. He wrote, all those prophecies occurred in the past and cannot be applied to Papal Rome. But outside the Catholic Church, his theories were not well accepted and had little impact and eventually they just faded away. Another Jesuit scholar, Francisco Ribeiro, according to Wikipedia, you can look this up for yourself, in order to remove the papacy of the Catholic Church from consideration of the Antichrist, he wrote a 500-page commentary on the book of Revelation. And in this book, he proposed that the first few chapters of the Apocalypse actually applied to ancient pagan Rome and the rest to a future period of three and a half literal years immediately before the second coming of Christ. He said the Antichrist would do the following thing. They persecute Christians, deny Jesus, kill the two witnesses of God, pretend to be God, abolish Christianity, destroy Rome, 
rebuild the Jewish temple, and conquer the world. Remember, he cooked all this up. It's just a theory. To prove his deliberately false conclusions, Rabir proposed that the 1260 days and 42 months and three and a half times of prophecy in Revelation 11 and Daniel 12 were not really 1,260 years as based on the year-day principle, which we'll find in Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4 verse 6. But he said it was a literal three and a half years. And therefore he hoped to disprove the Protestant finding and deflect attention away from the papacy. So the Protestant prophetic time chart that identified the papacy as the Antichrist was censored by the Jesuits. And it was replaced with a deliberately designed lie that twisted Daniel's prophecy about Christ and applied them to an Antichrist. Of course, he would be a Jew who would appear at some unspecified time way off in the future. Instead, they came up with this. They said, during this theoretical 70th week at the end of time, Christ would come secretly and the saints would vanish, called the secret rapture. But the Bible says in Revelation 1 verse 7 that every eye will see him when he comes. That's hardly a secret, isn't it? There's no secret rapture. He proposed that after the rapture, futurism claimed that an individual antichrist would make an agreement with the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and Jewish sacrifices would be reinstituted. And then he said the antichrist would break his agreement with the Jews, there'd be a great tribulation, the Jews would be converted, and 144,000 of them would preach to the world. And therefore, he said, all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Jews would be fulfilled at that time. Well, these two deliberate deceptions by the Jesuits effectively shifted the focus away from the Pope as the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. One pointed to the past, the other one pointed to the future. And unfortunately, these lives have been so devilishly effective that today almost all Protestant denominations teach that there will be a secret rapture followed by the coming of the Antichrist. Have you noticed that, folks? If you look at the teachings of other denominations, you will find that. And you might even find, if you look carefully, that the foreign policy of the United States is built on this kind of theology. So we can see today, as we look back at history, that what the papists couldn't accomplish by fear, torture and slaughter, they now accomplish by stealth, infiltration into political and financial positions of power, an appearance of reformed piety and deceptive theology that seeks to bring all Protestants back together with Rome, with the Pope as their leader. So we need to ask the question, Just how close are we today to the fulfilment of the papacy's goal of the total destruction of Protestantism? How close are we really? I want you to watch this video clip from Pastor Doug Batchelor of Amazing Fact. Now why is it historic? Because in 1999, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Lutheran Church signed an agreement that brought an end to the protest. 
Luther believed that we were saved by grace through faith alone. Amen. A little correction. It wasn't just Luther that believed this. It was tens of thousands of dedicated Christians that wanted to get back to the Bible. Huss believed it. Wycliffe believed it. Tyndale believed it. All the great reformers believed it. It wasn't just Luther. But that's not it. The Catholic Church believed that we were saved by works. And that was the protest. In 1999, they wrote this together. Because in the Protestant Church, we had a lot of cheap salvations. People were getting born again, but no fruit whatsoever. And because we didn't even look for fruit, it wasn't the issue. Because it wasn't necessary for salvation. And no, it's not. But it's a good judge if you are saved. So what these two churches did, they put the two definitions together. Listen to it. I'm reading verbatim from the Catholic Vatican website. Justification means that Christ himself is our righteousness. In which we share through the Holy Spirit in accord with the will of the Father. Together we Catholics and Protestants, Lutherans, believe and confess that by grace alone, in faith, in Christ's saving works, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. Well, this may sound like it was just uh, the protest of Luther. Luther didn't protest against one thing. He nailed 95 different points of protest on the doors of the Wittenberg Church. This is addressing one of the issues. It's not the only issue. And you'll notice that in the wording, in the language that's used in this agreement, it's very convoluted and cagey because the Catholics were looking for a wording where they would not need to renounce what they formally believed or say there was anything wrong with their doctrines. And so uh, don't have time to go into that, but it's not exactly what it appears on the surface. This brought an end to the protest of Luther. Brothers and sisters, Luther's protest is over. Is yours. In 1999, this was signed by the Lutheran Church, the Federation Worldwide. Later, about five years later, the Worldwide Methodists signed the same agreement. But as of today, we still have had no Protestant evangelical that will stand up and sign this agreement to agree with our brothers and sisters that we are saved by grace through faith to good works. And I believe that's something that needs to be fixed. Let's pause. So he's really throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying... Lutherans have signed an agreement that the protest is over, and the Methodists signed this agreement. Now we're looking for the um, evangelicals and the Pentecostals to sign this agreement. And so we can all be one again. The Protestant Reformation, not necessary. Uh, We're all in harmony now. There's a challenge for you. So the protest has been over for 15 years. And I get a bit cheeky here because I challenge my Protestant pastor friends. If there is no more protest, how can there be a Protestant church? I I think it's uh, easy for us to see where this is going. Uh, The distinction between Protestants and Catholics is uh, being chipped away at. 
This is a movement towards a one-world religion. This is exactly what prophecy says has to happen before Jesus comes back. The world's being shaken right now. There'll only be two groups when Christ comes back. One group will have the seal of God. The other group will have the mark of the beast. Obviously, if there are 33,000 different Christian denominations, something has to happen to polarize these two groups into those one of those two camps. This is where you're seeing prophecy being fulfilled right now, friends. These are the kind of statements, these are the kinds of appeals that will be made to bring everybody together into one unified body where we downplay doctrine, downplay the Bible. Ellen Watt saw this coming 150 years ago. And she wrote about it. This is what she said. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country, and she's talking about the United States, will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. Unquote. So what is this threefold union she's speaking about here? It is simply this. She's saying that the Roman Church will gain the cooperation of secular governments and the new age-minded public who, although professing no religion, nevertheless follow many of the ideas of spiritualism and Eastern mysticism. And also, the third one, apostate Protestantism, meaning Protestants who have unwittingly embraced the ideas of Romanism. They've been tricked. God has many sincere people in these other denominations. They're not aware of what Satan is doing to his agents, and they've been tricked. They've embraced the ideas of Romanism. These three significant voices of the modern age will unite together to promote the agenda of Rome, which although claiming to be working for the common good of all people and to save the planet from looming destruction, will nevertheless will quickly work to bring in laws that actually trample on the rights of conscience of any dissenter. And ultimately, in particular, anyone who refuses to participate in her unbiblical worship practices. I'm quoting again from Ellen White. She said that papists, Protestants and worldlings alike will accept the form of godliness without the power. And they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of a long-expected millennium. Remember the rapture theory? When our nation, the United States, shall so abjure the principles of its government as to enact a Sunday law, Protestantism will in this act join hands with popery. It will be nothing else than giving life to the tyranny which has long been eagerly watching for its opportunity to spring again into active despotism. And Ellen White wasn't the only one to have serious concerns about the idea of unity at any cost that great English preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, had this to say. A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they're saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organisation, regardless. Unite, unite. Such teachings, he says, is false, reckless and dangerous. Truth alone 
must be must determine our alignment. He said, truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. He said, our Lord's prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. And what is thy truth, did he say? Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise, he said, is to betray the gospel. Amen? Amen. It is, isn't it? And our own world president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Pastor Ted Wilson, in his first inaugural sermon in 2010, he quietly warned about drifting away into deceptive theology that tended towards unity at the expense of truth. When he said this, he was thinking ahead. He said, don't reach out to movements or mega church centers outside the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which promise you spiritual success based on faulty theology. Stay away from non-biblical spiritual disciplines or methods of spiritual formation that are rooted in mysticism, such as contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and the emerging church movement in which they are promoted. He said, go forward, not backward. Stain for truth though the heavens fall. Don't succumb to fanatical or loose theology that wrests God's word from the pillars of biblical truth and the landmark beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Can you say amen to that? He says, Today, my dear brothers and sisters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I think we can say this to other denominations as well, we must stand firm on the foundations of Scripture. What do you say, folks? This is the basis of the Protestant Reformation. As God's people of the book, let us read the Bible, let us live the Bible, teach the Bible, and preach the Bible with all power from on high. What do you say? That's a good statement. So friends, we ask the question, where do you stand today? Have you been a victim of deceptive teaching that although claiming to lead you into truth have actually led you further away from it? Has that been your situation? Would you like to learn more about the real truth? The truth that the enemies of God hate and they do their most, their utmost to obscure while claiming to be the followers of God. The truth about Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to this world to demonstrate the love of God in doing everything possible to save man from sin and eternal separation from God. The truth that out of profound gratitude leads to a deep desire to be obedient to his commandments and live a new life free from sin. Not in order to be saved. We don't keep the commandments in order to be saved. That's a fallacy. We are not legalists. We keep the commandments out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Isn't that so? It's the response to the belief of salvation not a means to salvation. There's a big difference. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God in accordance with his divine words in the Bible, it becomes omnipotent. Isn't that good news? It becomes supernaturally empowered. We are not left to overcome temptation or accomplish great things in our home human strength. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enabling. He gives us supernatural hope to overcome seemingly impossible obstacles and move forward as we grow in grace 
in grace and practical godliness. That's good news, isn't it? If you would like to learn more, for our viewers, if you'd like to learn more about these wonderful truths, I would like to invite you today to respond to this special offer. Pick up your pen and write this down. Here is the information you need. Inspired by the Reformation, the Great Controversy DVD production is a musical and historical journey through Europe. It is written's John Bradshaw joins Fountain View Academy to host this production filmed in five different countries of Europe at historically meaningful sites. These young musicians share not only music, but personal testimonies and powerful Reformation stories still relevant to our lives today. To order your own set of the Great Controversy DVD and book by Fountain View Academy Orchestra and Singers, visit their online web store at store.fountainview.ca. That's store.fountainview.ca. Or you may call them in North America on 1877 490 4141. Friends, time is running out fast. Do you believe that? Yes. Can you see it happening? Yes. Can you see the signs fulfilling? Yes. The prophesied events that we've been waiting for for so long are happening right in front of our eyes. It won't be long before we see Jesus coming back in the clouds just as he promised. And he wants you to be ready. He wants to take you with all the faithful of all ages whom he will raise from their graves back with him to live for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, no longer contaminated with sin and death. Isn't that the hope we're waiting for? Isn't that what we do all this work for? Isn't that what we strive for? Will you be ready? Will you make your decision to stand up for Jesus right now as you listen to this beautiful message by Pastor John Bradshaw and the Fountain View Academy Orchestra. Now this is history. At one time in his life, Martin Luther was captured. As it turned out, he was captured by some of his own supporters and he was brought here to the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach in Germany. You see, while he was here, and he was here for about ten and a half months, Martin Luther was used by God to translate the New Testament into German. Without the Bible, there could be no Reformation. So Luther translated the Word of God into the language of the people. And he did it right here in this very room. Over the years and years gone by, I mean, many of Martin Luther's supporters came to this room to leave their mark. They have carved their name and the date of their visit into the walls of this room. In fact, one reason why Luther's original desk is not extant today is because over the years his supporters came here and they would take away a little piece of his desk. In the end, it simply ceased to exist. Interesting story about his time here. Luther was brought here secretly, and even the soldiers who worked here didn't know who he was. They were told he was a man named Junker Jorger, George the Noble. 
And so Luther, who grew his beard and grew out his hair, was incognito. Many people thought he was dead. His enemies were rejoicing. They were confident that he was dead. But Luther was anything but dead. He was very much alive. And because he had spent time here during which he could translate the Bible, the Bible was very much alive. And because the Bible had been delivered into the hands of the people in their own language, the Reformation in Germany and then throughout the world was surging forward.
What do you say? Amen. Amen. Beautiful music, harmonic music, just a little taste of heaven. Let it pray. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee so much for the provisions you've made for us to learn the truth. You've shown us the mighty heritage of the Protestant Reformation. You've shown us the plans, the strategies of the enemy of all righteousness, your personal enemy, Satan. He has worked through his agents, his unwitting agents on this earth to corrupt and turn your people away from the great goal of reuniting with you. We certainly do want unity, but Lord, we want unity with you and we want unity on the basis of truth with our brethren, not unity without doctrine. For we perceive that the Protestant Reformation is far from over. So please bless us as we move forward in faith and practice. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and move our hearts, Lord, to do according to thy will, to reach out to others, and to spread this wonderful message of truth while the window of opportunity is open. Because we perceive it is fast closing. And Lord, we are conscious also of the fact we need the Holy Spirit's power to do it. We cannot do it alone. We cannot keep our commandments alone. But we know and we are confident that you have told us we can keep it in your power because that's what Jesus demonstrated. So please bless us as we move forward in faith and practice. We thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.